0: Hello! Welcome to the WWBL podcast. My name is Jen Fiorelli and I'm the editor for the Women Writing Berlin Labs online magazine. In each episode, I read work from classic writers, host contemporary female writer guests, discuss themes around the experience of writing, share writing tips or prompts, and book recommendations. In this episode, we'll read a poem by Alice Moore Dunbar Nelson discuss intersectional feminism and in writing, and follow that up with some reading recommendations. Quite a lot of read- reading recommendations, actually. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. Without further ado, on with the show. Today's public domain poetry reading will be a piece by Alice Moore Dunbar Nelson, simply entitled "Sonnet." Uh, First, I'd like to look at her background a little bit. So Dunbar Nelson was born on July 19th in 1875, um, and she died September 18th, 1935. She was an American poet, journalist, and political activist. Among the first generation born free in the South after the Civil War, it was about 10 years after um, slavery in America ended with the Emancipation Proclamation. She was one of the prominent African Americans involved in the artistic flourishing of the Harlem Renaissance. Her first husband was the poet Lawrence, uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, After his death, she then married physician Henry A. Callis, and lastly, was married to Robert J. Nelson, a poet and civil rights activist. She achieved prominence as a poet, um, author of short stories and dramas, newspaper columnist, activist for women's rights, and editor of two anthologies. Uh, Just additional information she was born in New Orleans. And she was the daughter of an African American seamstress and a former slave, as well as a um, a sea seaman. Seaman. <laughs> Her parents, um, Patricia Wright and Joseph Moore, were middle class people of color, and part of the traditional multiracial Creole community of New Orleans. So, with that background, let's get into the reading. Sonnet by Alice Moore Dunbar Nelson. I had not thought of violets late, the wild-shy kind that spring beneath your feet in wistful April days when lovers mate, and wander through the fields in rapture sweet. The thought of violets meant florist shops, and bows, and pins, and perfumed papers fine, and garish lights, and mincing little fops, and cabarets, and soaps, and deadening wines. So far from sweet, real things my thoughts had strayed. I had forgot wide fields and clear brown streams, the perfect loveliness that God has made, wild violets shy and heaven-mounting dreams. And now, unwittingly, you've made me dream of violets and my soul's forgotten gleam. I chose this poem partly because it's evocative of spring, and thank goodness that's coming along soon for us in the Northern Hemisphere. I also chose it because I loved the details she added in bows, pins, perfumed papers, fine, cabarets, and soap. Adding in real life um, tangible details to your writing will always add a human element that lets the reader relate to the work on a personal level sometimes when we write about our emotions and our thoughts it can get very abstract and cerebral which runs the risk of losing a connection with the reader you may want to take that risk on some works but not on others Um, so you might look for a way to keep the themes being explored grounded in reality she's exploring love and spring here but she gives us glimpses of her real life by showing us what she kind of thought love was or you know forgot what love reminded her of it just lets us see the world through her eyes for a moment so adding in those details can really help with um taking your poetry to a different place it just adds a more a layer of realism into your poetry as much as possible I will seek out female writers femme identified writers from all backgrounds and locations but I'm always happy to take suggestions if you know of a writer especially particularly somebody who's in the public domain so somebody from the 19th century if you know of a writer that I should be reading on here please write to me at wwblsubmissions at gmail.com. Give me a suggestion. That email will be in the description for this podcast. Today, we're going to look at intersectional feminism and the world of writing, why it's important for us to understand and implement this branch of feminism. March 8th, 8th of March is International Women's Day, and the entire month is Women's History Month. Now, we just wrapped up Black History Month in February, and I love that beautiful segue from February into March, from Black History Month into Women's History Month, um, and what it represents for two groups that face marginalization and oppression. I felt like the transition from Black History Month into Women's History Month was a literal representation of intersectionality. There's no need to stop talking about or promoting Black female or femme-identified writers because black just because Black History Month is over, we can still talk about that. Um, Because of intersectionality, all we're doing is broadening the scope slightly to include more people. We're zooming out a little bit and getting a bigger picture. So first, let's cover our basics. What is intersectional feminism? The term intersectionality was coined by civil rights activist and professor Kimberly Crenshaw and can be defined as the interconnected nature of social categorizations such as race, class, and gender as they apply to a given individual or group regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. So essentially, white women, for example, may experience discrimination or harassment because of their gender. But black women may experience discrimination and harassment due to their gender and also their race add into that social class, regardless of race, sexual orientation, gender identity, and disability, and there's a third, fourth, fifth, and sixth layer for potential disenfranchisement. Intersectional feminism seeks to acknowledge all those layers that can and do affect the real lives of people. That's the basic idea in a nutshell. So why is this important for us as writers? What's the significance uh, for us? Well, as I was working on the uh, script for this episode, I started by looking for public domain poetry. It's kind of where I always start. And one of the first names that came up was Charlotte Perkins Gilman. And I thought, that name sounds familiar. I couldn't think of why. But it was for good reasons. North American listeners will know her as the woman who wrote The Yellow Wallpaper which was a piece on postpartum psychosis that was published in 1892, a time when women's mental health, everybody's mental health, and experiences were taken much less seriously than today, of course. It was a really pivotal piece of feminist writing, and she herself was active in social reform. Um, She's even been inducted into the Women's Hall of Fame in Seneca Falls, New York, Uh, where the fight for women's suffrage in the United States kicked off. White women's suffrage, that is. So as I was looking at her Wikipedia page, um, I saw race in the table of contents. And just as I was clicking the link to take me to that part of the page, my thoughts kind of went in two directions. I thought maybe she was like wonderfully and miraculously ahead of her time But the more cynical side of me said, well, considering the time period, I don't know about that. I was not prepared for the pit to drop in my stomach as I read Gilman's thoughts on race. I can honestly hardly bring myself to read it to you. So this is a warning that although she doesn't use particular words that are offensive and egregious, what she says as a whole is disgusting. In the March 1909 edition of the American Journal of Sociology, Perkins wrote an article entitled A Suggestion on the Negro Problem. It brings me no joy to repeat that title. In fact, it makes me want to cry. Not just because of how sickened I feel when I think of someone purposely writing out those words but also because of how tragic it is to have a piece like this in the metaphorical library of women's written works. I'm going to read a section of the piece that was on Wikipedia, so it's kind of mm, edited and abridged, just a condensed uh, section from the actual article. Um, The article itself is eight pages long. You can read it in full at the University of Chicago Press Journals. I'll put the link for that in the description. So let's uh, getting in, get into the reading here. Um, this is a direct quote. We have to consider the unavoidable presence of a large body of aliens, of a race widely dissimilar and in many respects inferior, whose present status is to us a social injury. Gilman further suggested that the problem is this, given in the same country... Race A progressed in social evolution, say, to status 10, and Race B progressed in social evolution, say, to status 4. Given that Race B, in its present condition, does not develop fast enough to suit Race A, question, how can Race A best and most quickly promote the development of Race B? Gilman's solution was that all black people needed a certain grade of citizenship, quote-unquote. Those who were not decent, self-supporting, and progressive should be taken hold of by the state. This proposed system, which Gilman called, quote-unquote, enlistment rather than enslavement, would require the enforced labor of Black Americans, men, women, and children. Gilman believed that those enlisted should receive a wage, but only after the cost of the labor program was met. It makes me angry to read that. I feel a rage coming up from my core when I read that. Um, I had to take a break just now because I started crying talking about it. it. It's really left me kind of shaken because here I thought that this woman was a champion for women's rights you know this beacon of feminist writing that only included her own race that's what I've come to discover um I mean it's completely changed my image of her and it's really um it's really disheartening for me personally uh so you might not know who uh, Perkins Gilman is Maybe you've never heard of the yellow wallpaper. Maybe you're not in the least surprised that a white woman writing at the turn of the 20th century would think this way. So let's modernize it. Let's bring it into the 21st century. I bet you know who J.K. Rowling is. Rowling Rowling. I bet you grew up reading and loving Harry Potter, at least watching the movies, especially if you're a millennial. But I mean, Harry Potter is embedded into the world of young adult fiction, fantasy writing, uh, just <laughs> the tattoo industry, you know. Um, it's hard to imagine a person on earth who didn't hear about Rowling's diatribe on trans women and men this summer via Twitter. It was basically career suicide on an atomic level. I'm not going to read. Portions of her letter and her tweets that sort of kicked off this whole thing because you know, we kind of all lived through it this past summer, and um, it's very you know, that's very accessible. You can look that kind of stuff up really quickly with Google searches. Um, I just want to you know, kind of move on from that. We've had enough like terrible, you know, that reading from Charlotte Perkins Gilman was enough. Um, So beyond the anger that people felt toward Rowling for her views on the trans movement, there was a deep sense of grieving for those people who had previously felt understood and accepted by, what do you say, by the world of Harry Potter when they sort of imagined themselves in that world. They felt like maybe this is a place that I could be accepted and understood and, I would have people fighting on my side. It's a place where your friends will accept you no matter what. And and Hogwarts accepts um, witches and wizards who are born magical or born to non-magical parents. I'm not phrasing that particularly correctly. But all the students are treated equally. Now, of course, there is discrimination in the wizarding world between, you know, witches and wizards who are muggle-born and witches and wizards who are magic born I suppose you would say Uh, but in the eyes of the school and the world you know those people are we don't you know they're not respected that opinion is not respected I mean Hermione Granger is one of the most inspiring and well-developed or at least the most well-known female character in modern literature so imagine the shock the slap in the face, the pit in the stomach, the rage building up of devoted readers when they saw what Rowling thought about the trans movement. Now, there are a lot of fantastic videos on YouTube that break down and do a deep dive into her letter and her tweets, and they take you through the various dog whistles and stereotypes that Rowling leans into. I'm not directly affected by it. I'm just sort of an observer of that. And, you know, I read it and watch it all go down. So I don't feel comfortable kind of diving into the whole thing. I'm going to link in the description of this the videos that I saw that really were just wonderful pieces on what was wrong with what Rowling said. Um... But the main takeaway from the whole scandal is that literally millions of people were left feeling at best like it left a bad taste in their mouth and at worst, completely shattered. Looking at the two, these two examples, I see a really apparent overlap between what Gilman said and what Rowling said. And this is about, you know, it's about a 100 year difference, 95 year difference that they're saying these similar things. It's two white women who are known for their activism and feminism, uh, but they also harbor really discriminatory opinions, completely unaware or unwilling to see that the things they believe work in complete opposition to the very equality and representation they seek and embody themselves Though they both understood or understand their own oppression and disadvantage in the world, they can't or won't see how they contribute to the oppression and disadvantage of other people. It's the height of irony. The work by these women are significant in that their words reflect The entire world of women writers and femme identified writers and based on these other infamously known or less well-known works by them it's not a reflection that i enjoy looking at what does intersectional feminism have to do with writing everything living and writing as an intersectional feminist means that you understand that your words matter and more importantly, that they're permanent. As they say, nothing can be erased from the internet. Now, who is to say what changes will come along in a 100 years and how our words will be interpreted and what words will change meaning, fall out of fashion or favor? We can't predict that. But we can write with the knowledge that the future will look to our words to find out who we were, what we thought about, worried about, cared about, And not just you and me, the individual writer, but also our world, the times that we're living in, the internet at this time period. One day, this time now will be in the past. And it'll only be our words, our videos, our podcasts that show what we're fighting for. Our work will have to stand on its own two feet and tell the future this was what we cared about. It'll leave an indelible mark by which the future judges us. We tried our hardest to care about and protect everyone from feeling less than others. And we fought against those who wanted to maintain that sense of superiority, the status quo. As we move through Women's History Month, we can think and write and talk about how imperfect the past and the present are, And even despite that, not having a clue what future generations will think of their past and our present, we can feel assured that we're using our words to fight the good fight, to help and not to harm, and simply hope that that's enough. So Let's talk about reading recommendations. I have a list of women writers of the world. As I tried to work through it, I felt like I wasn't going to do justice to the proper pronunciation of names and book titles. because I'm trying to, you know, I picked books and writers from a lot of different places, a lot of language backgrounds. So what I'm going to do is take that list. It's going to go on our website. So when you're done listening, you're going to go to wearewbl.com, That's our website. You're going to look under resources. The uh, article that I'm going to make of that is going to be called Women Writers of the World. And that'll just be, it's not an exhaustive list at all. The world is a big place. It was very hard to whittle down which writers to pick. Um, but it's a good place to start. I'm hoping that that document will be kind of a, uh, an evolving piece. So if you read it and you have other suggestions, as always, write to me, please. Um, so what I want to look at instead is, uh, this is an article by the International Women's Development Agency in Australia. And this is 10 New and Old Books for Intersectional Feminist Readers. That's us. Um, this was published on January 23rd, 2020. So I'm really just going to read off these book titles. Um, and I will link this article in the Women Writers of the World document that I'm going to put on our website. So... We have No Country Woman by Zoya Patel. Trans by Juliette Jacques. Women, Race, and Class by Angela Y. Davis. Dark Secrets After Dreaming by Janine Lean. Don't Call Me Inspirational, A Disabled Feminist Talks Back by Haralyn Russo. Too Much Lip by Melissa Lukashenko. Hunger, a memoir of, parentheses, My Body by Roxane Gay. Sister Outsider, Essays and Speeches by Audre Lorde. Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo. Educated by Tara Westover. And finally, On Intersectionality by Kimberly crenshaw who we talked about earlier, she's the one who kind of gave us the working definition for intersectionality. So you can find, again, you're going to find all of that information and more on our website under resources, Women Writers of the World. Well, dear listeners, we've reached the end of the episode. This was a thought-provoking and emotional episode for me to work on. I had to stop multiple times to (laughs) stop myself from crying. Um, I hope it was enlightening and affirming for you and the work that you're doing. Your work has meaning and there's power behind your words now and in the future. This entire podcast and WWBL itself would not be possible without our founder, Margarita Scorbiza, our VP, Aliyah Sadagapoor, and our podcast editor, Astrid Choiaman. We have a whole team of people who deserve appreciation for their hard work. I'm also grateful to you, our readers and listeners, because you give our work purpose. If you want to learn more about us, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at we Are WWBL. You can find our regularly updated online magazine at our website, com. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next time.